This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of New Books in Latin American Studies. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Jaime Pensado about his new book, Love and Despair, How Catholic Activism Shaped Politics and the Counterculture in Modern Mexico, just out from with the University of California Press in 2023. Jaime Pensado is Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame, He grew up in Mexico City. His publications have appeared in multiple edited volumes, as well as in the journals, The Americas, Mexican Studies, Estudios Mexicanos, the Journal of the History of Childhood and Youth, and the 60s Journal. He is also author of the 2013 book, Rebel Mexico, Student Unrest and Authoritarian Political Culture During the Long 60s. And with Enrique Ochoa, Pensado co-edited Mexico Beyond 1968, Revolutionaries, Radicals, and Repression during the Global 60s and Subversive 70s. Uh, Jaime Pensado, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Well, no, thank you. Thank you, Brad, for, for having me. It's an honor to talk to you about this new project that I have. Great to talk with you. I wonder if we could begin by you telling us a little about the origins of this book and this research project, uh, the book, once again, titled Love and Despair. What led you to researching uh, Catholic activism in Mexico during that pivotal period from the 1950s to the 70s and asking these particular questions about its intersections with politics and the counterculture? Yes, yes, thank you for that. Um, Absolutely. So I think in many ways, uh, the book has taken many shapes and it has been reframed multiple times since I first conceived of the idea of, uh, of just doing research on Catholicism, which I must admit, I knew very little about when I began this project, other than the fact that I was uh, uh, born and raised, as you said, in Mexico City in a in a Catholic culture, if you will. Uh, but in terms of a, a research project, I would say that the ideas uh, originated when I was doing research for my book, Rebel Mexico. Um, 
if you recall in one of those chapters of that first book, one of the arguments that I make has to do with uh, 1968. And I talk about the different ways in which various sort of uh, sectors of Mexico's conservative culture, if, if you will, uh, sort of came in support of the administration of Gustavo Díaz Ordaz, even in the aftermath of the Tlatelolco massacre. So I became fascinated as to the why. Why did so many people uh, find the need to sort of express a certain degree of gratitude to a president who was ruthless and who yet committed a massacre? And, um, and while I was doing the research, I came across a wide range of sources uh, that I just couldn't talk about in that first book. So I started creating this sort of uh, folders of various Catholic perspectives that, um, that also shaped what we are now historians of Latin America are calling the global 60s. At the time, we were referring it to it as, as the long 60s. And, uh, and one of the first sort of uh, research projects that I did in the aftermath of that first book was an article on, um, on one of the far-right movements that, he, that developed inside the UNAM campus and, and, and other universities across, across Mexico by the name of MUDO, the uh, University Movement of Renovation Orientation, this sort of a right-wing movement that to a large extent felt compelled to sort of uh, respond to um, kind of that environment that developed in the aftermath of both the Cuban Revolution and the reforms of Second Vatican Council. And uh, so I wrote about that sort of that perspective uh, in, in, a, in a special issue of the Americas that Eric Solov put together sort of to provide a historical understanding, again, of this idea of the global 60s in the broader Latin American region. So I made a contribution in that sense with the argument that, um, that we cannot write about the global 60s unless we start kind of taking into consideration these this right-wing voices, if you will. So it, my, my, my take on Muro was an effort to at least get us sort of uh, uh, started with that discussion. And eventually, um, I went ahead and, and, and wrote a different piece in Spanish that sort of looked at the other side of the spectrum of the Catholic perspective, that is, uh, um, again, within this sort of broad term of the left, if, of the Catholic left, by taking a closer look at the uh, Movimiento Estudiantil Profesional, or MEP, that unlike the Muro, found the ideas of the Vatican II uh, uh, useful. They welcomed them, and in so doing, they kind of radicalized a, a Catholic sector, a lay Catholic sector that was already operating in the, in the universities across Latin America. And of course, some of these members of Muro would eventually uh, join the, the Liga Comunista 23 de Septiembre, Mexico's largest guerrilla movement uh, that evolves in the aftermath, not only of the Tlatelolco massacre, but also of the Corpus Christi massacre. So, you know, I began with those stories, uh, but as I continued to do research on Catholicism and learn more about Catholicism uh, as, a, 
and it's and it's multiple kind of uh, expressions. I came to realize that oftentimes these sort of leftist or and or reactionary or right movements, the categories at times are useful, but not all the times. There was a lot in between that I wanted to write about, that I wanted to talk about. Uh, and, and to some extent, my book, Love and Despair, is an effort to sort of complicate that story and, 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 and get at the messiness of the multiple divergent Catholic movements that not only operated uh, during the global 60s, but the argument that I make is that they also shaped the global 60s. Uh, so I think that's sort of where the origin of the book is. Um, and I can elaborate on some of these things as we continue our conversation, but I want to give you a sense of of, of, of some of the uh, uh, first research that I did and some of the uh, general questions that I, that I originally raised. Thanks, Jaime. And you mentioned there how um, that then shaped uh, the global 60s, and this is a major component of your argument in the book. Um, could you just right up front maybe um, tell folks uh, what you feel is most important here in the book in terms of a, a contribution to existing scholarship on, on you know, the global 60s uh, or other relevant historiographical threads here? And, and, and elaborate on that part about your main uh, arguments in the book. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, yes. So, you know, I think one of the original things about this book, but also what made it difficult to write was the the different scholarships that I, that I engage with, you know, um, and to put it in, a, in the most general terms, I think I tried to challenge and engage with two broad scholarships, right? One that is a... Again, for the lack of a better term, in the, in the most general terms, it's a secular historiography that tends to be written from the perspective of the left, uh, that when writing about religion or about Catholicism, they often sort of talk about the church and, and Catholicism as if it were a, a monolithic movement, a monolithic institution. Um, they caricature those late movements that associate themselves uh, with religion. Uh, and I found this literature very useful, uh, but at the same time uh, problematic precisely because it does not sort of make the effort to create or to write a more nuanced uh, history that really kind of uh, allows us to see the various schisms, movements, ideologies, that uh, that composed Catholicism during during the 1960s or the global 60s. So this is true of both the historiography of the global 60s, but also true of the broader scholarship of post-1940 Mexico. There's very little, in fact, written about Catholicism post-1940 if you were to compare it, for instance, to the attention that religion in general and Catholicism in particular have received uh, when we write or, or talk about the colonial period, or, of course, when we write or talk about the Cristero Rebellion, 
right? I want a reader often probably finds it interesting to see how after 1940, the, the church and this Catholic movements as if they disappeared, right? But of course, the argument that I make is not only is that inaccurate, but, but, but they were very, very active throughout the post-war period and, of course, throughout the 1960s. So that's one scholarship that I sort of push back against or engage with. The other scholarship that I talk about and that I engage with is the one that I was less familiar with, and that is the Catholic body of work uh, that tended and that tends, although that's less true in most recent years, but that tends to talk about Catholicism almost exclusively in relation to the hierarchical structures of the church. So it's a it's a it's it's about a church it's it's about a history of the church, or about specific figures within the church, but with little attention to grassroots movements, with the exception of those associated with liberation theology. Uh, so you know, I I, re, I read that that scholarship, but realized that that the scholarship had paid very little attention to questions related to gender, questions related to sexuality, uh, questions related to, to 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 student movements, questions related to the counterculture, themes that I was most familiar with, youth culture, right? That's where I came from. Uh, since since I started doing research for my book, uh, Rebel Mexico. So I wanted to bring this broad scholarships together. I wanted to engage with them, you know, simultaneously in that sense. And in so doing, sort of push, push the narrative, right? Push the narrative a little bit and, 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 and ask questions. Well, what happens if, if, if we now engage in a dialogue and bring this these two uh, historiographies together, uh, not only in the in the context of uh, of Mexico, because the other thing that I wanted to do with this book, and I think the contribution that I make is that I place Mexico in the broader Catholic world in which the church always operated in. Right. Uh, so you know, my the movements that I study, the people that I look at in the book, are often operating in a very transnational context, oftentimes in relation to Europe and other times in relation to the Patria Grande, as it was called in Latin America during the 60s, you know, Latin America in that sense. So I'm placing these Catholic movements in this broader global network of movements and therefore the, the insistence on this term, the global 60s. And you mentioned that putting in the context of that broader Catholic world, it strikes me that that's what comes out in uh, sources from many of Catholic activists in that period, just as you said there, they're talking about key struggles in other Latin American, usually, but even beyond that, I mean, you you uh, made me aware of a 1957 conference in Nigeria um, that ended up being a kind of um, starting point for uh, some of these activists. Um, but how did you get to that? I mean, um, the sources used in this book are 
it's a remarkable range of them. I mean, that's one methodological thing that stands out to me, the impressive and creative range of the sources used to produce a study that can do things like um, examine the counterculture and its relation to Catholicism. So the source base is in part what makes us quite distinct from others on other studies on Catholic activism in that period, I think. Could you say something about sources? Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think it goes, it goes I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to something that I said earlier, right? By and large, if you look at books on post-1940 Mexico, you know, whether we are talking about cultural histories, political histories, or more specific histories of journalism, of more specific histories of film, you know, overwhelmingly, if you look at the sources that these historians use, they don't necessarily look at Catholic sources, you know, and by that I mean as simple as journals, magazines that were widely circulated across Mexico during this period, right? So that was one of the first things that that I wanted to look at. Uh, Even, you know, something as as easily accessible as uh, the weekly La Nación, right? The, The most important magazine of the National Action Party, the PAN, right? Uh, but you know, I'm also, I'm all, I also looked at uh, the main journal of the Social Secretariat Mexicanos, Secretario Social Mexicano, the magazine Contacto. I looked at the at the Jesuit magazine Christus. I looked at various student journals and magazines, ranging from Corporación, which was somewhat conservative in the context of the 1950s, the more progressive. Cuadernos del MEP, the more Latin American publications that were arriving from places like Montevideo, such as Vísperas, PES, and others, Rumbo, Palestra, and many others that are kind of get at the voices of the university student, who is um, kind of a key key, uh, actor in the stories that I tell. I try to kind of frame this Catholic, these histories of these Catholic movements with attention to youth. But I also looked at magazines such as Liberación that, uh, that take a more radical approach towards Catholicism in the aftermath of the Medellin Conference or Señal, uh, kind of a, 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 a magazine for f- kind of to reshape the understanding of the Catholic nation post-1940 Mexico that also talked about consumerism, that talked about culture uh, and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, but also places like, um, I looked at the uh, at the Carlos Septian Garcia School of Journalism that, uh, that educated many of these journalists and intellectuals that I talk about in the book. This was one of the first, as, as far as I know, one of the first schools of journalism in Latin America, and it was uh, it was created as a Catholic space by people within the PAN, but also by people within Catholic Action uh, that formed journalists such as Gerardo Medina, who eventually publishes a very interesting book on the 1971 Corpus Christi Massacred, but it also... Uh, uh, gives a space to rising Catholic intellectuals 
such as Vicente Leñero that I, that I provide a, a short biography of in the book. Uh, but then there's others, right? I mean, people like the Jesuit priest, um, Enrique Massa, who comes out of uh, Christus and eventually becomes one of the founders of the militant leftist magazine Proceso. So I wanted to kind of to, to, to tell the reader that, you know, this, this, this Catholic intellectuals, journalists, and so on uh, were very present, but not only in Catholic spaces. This is why I talk about Proceso, for instance, right? Uh, but I also, on the other side of the spectrum, I uncover magazines such as Replica and La Hoja de Combate that are more reactionary, more far-right publications in that sense as well as documents, encyclicals. You know, I started look, I started reading encyclicals, something that I, I never thought about doing, right, before. <laughs> so for the first time, I find myself kind of reading this, right? Uh, but also documents that I could only find uh, outside of Mexico. And I'm thinking, for instance, the documents that I found fascinating and also very helpful when in uh, when I discuss student activism, documents that I eventually found in in places like Quito, that held the documents of Selam, but also held the documents of the Latin American Secretariat, which was founded in Montevideo in the 1960s to bring together the two most important international Catholic movements. The MIEC, with origins in uh, in France and, and 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 Europe and other places, and the HEC or or the JEC, a, a more progressive international Catholic movements, and in Latin America, these two movements with origins in Europe and Canada come together to create the Latin American Secretariat in all of all places in Montevideo, and produce. Journals such as Vispera, Spes, in which you have uh, Mexican scholars and intellectuals kind of reading, including one of the, the directors of the Cuadernos of the the Cuadernos of the Latin American Secretariat is Francisco Merino, a, a, a Catholic activist from Mexico. So I started doing, I started reading these documents that I could only find in places like South America or in Europe, uh, such as um, in, in, in German archives. I looked at some of the Adveniat documents, a German organization that becomes very engaged across Latin America uh, in the context of the 1960s, sort of as an effort to make sense of the ways in which Christian democracy is coming to an end and new movements are emerging within the broader Catholic world. And Germany gets involved vis-a-vis -vis Adveniat uh, to sort of uh, to articulate a space right in this broader Cold War context so a third way alternative somewhere between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, right? Within the Catholic context of Christian democracy. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I found these documents everywhere in, in, in Louvain, in Belgium, uh, that specifically look at uh, the international organizations affiliated to film, for instance. So journals, um, you know, I interview a bunch of people uh, famous people, but also not so famous people. Um, 
you know, the, uh, uh, unfortunately, some of these figures have have passed away, but they were instrumental in in kind of for me at least in in having a better understanding of these various Catholic movements and some of these people who have passed away include uh, the the Jesuit priest Jesus Garcia, who probably gave me the best history uh, or the best descriptions of Mexican history from a Catholic perspective. My conversations with him were lengthy and and very, very uh, instrumental. But also people like Manuel Velázquez, right, from the Secretaria Social Mexicano, or the Dominican priest who eventually becomes a leader of of the human rights movement, Miguel Concha. So those are kind of the famous figures, or or even someone like Gustavo Gutierrez, who used to teach here at Notre Dame. And I had the honor, and I was very humbled just by kind of talking to him. And he gave me a really good understanding of or description of the various ways in which Catholic movements across the Americas came together with similar questions, but also with 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 distinct stories uh, divided by by versions of nas- nationalism. So these are kind of like the famous figure, but others less famous figures uh, include, among many, people like Jorge Bermeo, who was a very I- interesting uh, student activist of the 1950s, who became friends with someone like Diego Zavala, El Suegro of Felipe Calderón, <laughs> you know, so these people that who were operating within Catholic action, but also in the context of the PAN, a PAN that, that um, experienced generational changes, right, uh, with this youth that I talked about uh, and I interviewed. Uh, but then there was others like Rafael Reigadas, who was a, a priest and left the priesthood, and, and he was one who was um, tortured, by the Mexican authorities. He was one who became active in the uh, Sacerdotes para el Pueblo, uh, among other movements. So I, I, I interviewed a broad range of, of people uh, that allowed me to kind of get at the multiple Catholic movements that operated, not only with the political world, but also with the uh, countercultural world. So for the countercultural world, I found that space, for instance, among the Dominicans, the Spanish and French Dominicans, who created new spaces inside the UNAM campus, such as the CUC, the Centro Universitario Cultural, which in a, in a revolutionary country like Mexico, a secular country like Mexico, you couldn't have a university parish inside the UNAM campus. And therefore, the Dominicans were very savvy at sort of creating and presenting this as a cultural center. But the center had a parish. And what's also very interesting about the center is that um, it created a space for film, like European films that were exhibited, that were discussed in the, uh, uh, in the spirit of, of dialogue that emerges from the Second Vatican II, dialogue with the modern world. So you have a lot of European films that are addressing kind of new expressions of Catholicism in this new humanist language, this new aesthetic of existentialism, questions related to sexuality, questions related to gender, and questions related to the rise 
of the counterculture or La Onda in Mexico that talk about the family, that talked about amor libre or, 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 or free love. And, um, and so in that sense, I also interview someone like uh, the fascinating bohemian or hippie priest Enrique Marroquin, who is going to write in the 1970s what is arguably the most profound and, and the most important book on the counterculture in Mexico called La Contracultura como Protesta, who provides the first and most serious attempt to kind of study and analyze the importance of the hippie movement or La Onda in Mexico. But interestingly, he does so from the perspective of a priest, his own his own perspective. He is one who uh, uh, traveled across Europe uh, as a bohemian priest who welcomes kind of the rock music of the Rolling Stones, who welcomes the Misas de Juventud in Italy and, and in Rome and things like that, places like that, and, and eventually makes his way back to Mexico and becomes active uh, within Mexico's rising hippie movement, such as, so he writes, for instance, in the, in the, in the magazine Piedra Rodante, Mexico's Rolling Stone, he also kind of uh, engages in the psychedelic aspect of the hippie movement uh, as an effort to kind of find God in his own terms as a Catholic priest. Uh, so, you know, what I try to do is kind of get at those stories. And in addition to the oral interviews, the documents, the magazines and so on, I also looked at and I, I, I watch more than 80 films. I analyze a few of these most representative films. I think films gave me the um, uh, the visual, but also a better understanding of the ways in which various film directors, not, not exclusively Catholic, including some who were atheist directors, found the importance of talking about Catholicism nonetheless. So the films that I study and that I look at you know, talk about changing perceptions of youth, the so-called rebel without a cause, uh, with attention to gender. They talk about sexuality. They talk about uh, homosexuality. They talk about the pill. They talk about uh, uh, the ideas associated with the Second Vatican Council. All this, but within the national story of Mexican film. Right. So it's a it's a series of films that emerged in the 1950s and 60s after the so-called golden age of Mexican cinema collapses or comes to an end. And new cinematic movements uh, emerge. And, 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 and the argument that I make is that spaces were also created by these Catholics to uh, not only demonize film as they had done in previous generations and in the past, but rather to, to engage in conversations with these films. And they even create a, 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 a film school inside the Ibero-American school. They create cine clubs to kind of engage in conversations with some of these films. So the films allowed me to kind of get at this kind of cultural aspect that I, that, that I pay attention to in the film, in, in the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What were sort of the cultural waters that uh, Catholics of all kinds were were immersed in in this period, I guess, was the... <laughs> um, well, uh, you have organized this book uh, in a pretty helpful and readable way, I think, Jaime, and you've got three major parts to it, an introductory part, uh, what you call a political part, and the part focused on the counterculture. Um, in the first part, you know, you, and you mentioned this a couple of times in the book, the renewed moral authority of the middle class that... Um, seems to have emerged in Mexico in the post-war period and beyond. Could you s say a little more about that? What what was this renewed moral authority of the middle class and where did it come from? And Yeah, yeah. Yes, thank you, of course. So, you know, I mean, as we know, post-1940 Mexico history is a history of urbanization, right? It's a history of secularization, right? It's a history of the rise of the middle class with new habits of consumption, right? It's a, it's a history of the, the Americanization of Mexican culture. It's a history of Mexico becoming more, more cosmopolitan, right? And I think, again, it is a history, however, that, that has been almost ex exclusively told from the perspective of of secular and even leftist historians. So what I try to do is um, get at kind of the different ways in which a, a, a rising middle class that also identified itself as Catholic in many ways kind of made sense of this new Mexico that was emerging. And, and, and what I try to, I said earlier that the book was reframed multiple times and I, and I, and I even thought about writing two books at some point. Uh, but I eventually uh, ended up dividing the book, broadly speaking, into three parts, but even more generally into a political and a countercultural part. So basically, the first part of the book is sort of an introduction, if you will, to these two worlds, the political and the, and the, and the cultural. So respectively, these two first chapters get at... Uh, kind of the 50s, right, as, a, as this moment of this antecedent to the global 60s, if you will, in which, you know, you get at the ways in which these various lay movements uh, made sense of this new modern Mexico that was on the rise. So the first chapter, for instance, I, I provide a, kind of a sort of an intellectual biography, not an intellectual, but, but a, a sort of a biography of, of a very interesting figure, Emma Siegler, from a German-Mexican family who uh, comes also from a very, very conservative network of Catholic action, but is uh, fascinated by the new liberal language that emerges with the new encyclical uh, uh, Miranda Prosus that, that, talks, that, that, that engages Catholics to sort of become more active in dialogue and conversations with the entertainment industry. So she, she, she's shaped by, by these new ideologies that are emerging, by the friendship that she develops with 
a, a, an activist from Cuba, and in so doing, begins to sort of look at film as an opportunity to engage with the rise of the phenomenon of the youth rebellion without a cause of the 1950s. So again, um, this is just kind of an introduction to what is going to come later on in the 1960s. The second chapter, in that sense, also uh, freezes the story to the 1950s as a, as a, again, as a precursor to what's coming ahead, but with more specific attention to, uh, to male activists who become involved in, in, in student movements in the rising context of the Cold War era, because the global 60s, as we know it, sort of happens as a chapter of this broader Cold War story. So that's kind of the first part of the book. Um, the second part of the book looks at the more political aspects of this histories of the 60s, if you will, but with attention to state violence, progressive forms of Catholicism, but also of the radicalization of these late Catholic movements. So I looked at uh, journalism, uh, at the School of Journalism that I mentioned earlier. I looked at the ways in which various Catholic movements and individuals responded to both the Tlatelolco and the Corpus Christi massacre. But I also look at the ways in which they responded, shaped, and participated in discussions associated with socialism and the question of armed struggle. Again, all themes that, um, that relate to this, cons- to this uh, concern of mine of, of youth culture, state violence, and, and, and student movements. And then on the third part of the book, the largest part of the book, which includes four chapters, chapter six to nine, look at the various countercultural movements uh, with attention to uh, uh, La Onda or, or, and its relationship to liberation uh, as described in the making of the book that I mentioned earlier by Marroquin, La Contracultura como Protesta. So I study kind of the movements that shaped his own understanding of Catholicism and how those how that understanding shaped his writing of that very, very influential book. Then Enrique, Enrique Marroquin, the groovy priest That's and right. his, his hip <laughs> message of God. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I had a, a, a lot of fun, not only writing about that chapter, but uh, but just engaging in a conversation with him. You know, so I, I take that story and then I expand. I talk about European film, Mexican film, Arunam, in this context of the Dominican University Parish that was created there in uh, with attention to this importance of dialogue, dialogue as an expression of love and therefore the importance of the title. And I, and I can talk about that as well in a minute. Um, uh, but the other chapters look at sexual, uh, at the sexual liberation of the times, what I'm calling uh, the redemption of, of, of homosexuality as described by some of these Catholic intellectuals, including Vicente Leñero, who, who, who uh, we know very well by his novels and by his books and so on, but we know less of his writings as a film uh, writer. Uh, so I look at the film scripts that he wrote and, and, and analy- analyze some of these films. I also look at the space that he created within the 
the, the magazine for women, Claudia, uh, where there's discussions about fashion and what it, what it constitutes to be a, a proper middle-class Mexican woman in this context of modernity, going back to your general question. And I conclude with um, kind of the ways in which Catholics saw a need to revisit the, the legacy of the Cristero Rebellion in, a, in, 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 in this new cinema that emerges in the 1970s. Uh, but I also look at the way in which a more radical expression of La Onda emerges to talk about Catholicism in films like... Uh, uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's La Montaña Sagrada, for instance. So this gives you kind of a sense of, of where I take the book, the various directions that I take the book, but also, you know, the, the, um, the different movements that I hope to kind of illustrate that made up these various, various Catholic worlds. You mentioned La Onda. Uh, for our listeners who are unaware how would you define that um and i mean it's sort of the counterculture uh from mexico and from latin america more broadly um so tell us what la onda is and then how does that concept of love uh you know work at the intersections of liberationist movements and the counterculture in Mexico, because that seems to be what you're saying uh, brings those threads together. Yes, thank you. Um, well, let, let me let me start by answering kind of the, 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 the second part of the question. So one way in which I understand the 60s, the global 60s, is this world that is polarized by these tensions. On the one hand, you have this kind of utopian aspirations of change. And what I found in the movements that I study is that they often describe themselves in the name of love, right? So this love as a catalyst of change. And, you know, the, che Guevara, the, the revolution is about love. The, it's people like Che Guevara uh, spoke about love, but, you know, people like Freire, Paulo Freire, uh, uh, Elder Camara, uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, but also John Lennon and many, many others sort of, uh, you know, expressed the importance of love in the creation, in the utopian creation of a better world. But when this utopia did not emerge in the aspirations of the 1960s, the, the people that I look at begin to talk about an increasing sense of despair, and therefore the title, right? Love and Despair. And despair came in numerous expressions, right? In the form of disillusionment, in the form of um, uh, political repression, in the commercialization of the countercultural movement, or again, the way in which it is framed and understood in Mexico is understood as La Onda. And of course... Uh, uh, historian Eric Solov has written extensively about kind of the significance and also the rise of the of La Onda, which was a way of redefining the nation, if you will, but from a cultural perspective, right? A youthful perspective that begins to look at 
the aesthetics of uh, rock music, the language of rock music, but also the new ideas associated with existentialism, bohemian behaviors emerging from across the world to redefine what it means to to understand the nation. And, and in Mexico, La Onda became kind of a short phrase to make sense of the various movements that made up the broader countercultural movement, not only in relation to the nation, but also in relation to new and changing understandings of, of sexuality, fashion, uh, ideology in broader terms. Um, the concept of liberation, for instance, the concept of liberation was at the, at the center of these polarizing tendencies between love and despair. And of course, liberation uh, is not only a political term, as the new left understood it at the time, and as we as historians of the global sixties now sort of reflect back on this, liberation was not only political, but it was also uh, an idea that was uh, spiritual. I mean, therefore, right, liberation theology. Uh, it was also sexual, right? That's right. Sexual liberation, right? Uh, aesthetic, artistic, and cinematic. There's there's all these kind of multiple revolutions that are taking place in this context of the global 60s that would uh, make up what we now call the new left, right? This, to use again, Soloff, but also Van Gogh's, the new left as a movement of movements. And as a historian of the global 60s, I'm saying, yes, the political matters, the, the cultural matters, but what I'm also adding and saying, well, the spiritual and the religious matter. And someone like Marroquin and others, you know, understood that very well. So I write about them, right? And, and, and I talk about how someone like this, this, this groovy priest <laughs> kind of uh, talked about um, uh, liberation. So, for instance, in his homilies, he, he talked about the Beatles. And he, talked about, he, he engaged in dialogue with lyrics from, from the Beatles and, 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 and specifically with John Lennon. <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and so, you know, he's, uh, again, with this dialogue with the secular world, right, the importance of that, he found it in this Misas de Juventud, this sort of a, uh, and, and this was not unique to Mexico. This happens in Italy, across Europe, across Latin America, in which, for instance, as an effort to engage in dialogue with, with, with uh, the youth, uh, priests across the world begin to incorporate rock music uh in you know in their in in their sunday mass for instance and in the case of mexico this had happened earlier with in places like cuernavaca with someone like uh, sergio mendez arceo the bishop begins to incorporate mariachi music for instance in the in the sunday mass so you know what this hippie uh, priest and others begin to articulate for is uh, a better understanding of the multiple movements that are that are shaping this generation of of this of of, of the era, right? That that is that is questioning uh, the status quo in his in his broadest term in his in in his broader term of the world, right? I mean, in the sense of uh, a status quo that is a 
political, cultural, and religious, and so on and so forth. And what about the despair on the other, and that kind of dialectic in the book? I mean, it's in some parts, you note the despair of conservatives and reactionaries at the seeming uh, <laughs> proliferation of this counterculture and the things that worry them. Um, but it also seems that the counterculture was, uh, and, and the left too in Mexico in this period was, uh, still just that, you know, counter culture and, uh, you know, not hegemonic. So <laughs> what about the despair and the falling short, um, not to end on a down note, but of, of, of the left and counterculture groups and movements in this period. And, you know, maybe just to add to that, Jaime, and this is another book, but uh, and the enduring legacy of, of those movements and their sure. um, falling short. Sure, sure. No, absolutely. So, yes, I, uh, you know, it's not it's not a neat story in the sense that everything is love and all of a sudden things take the turn of despair, right? I think that what I try to argue in the book is that this, these are always kind of there. These are always present. So there's moments of despair, right? So the Tlatelolco massacre is one of these moments of despair. And in the Catholic world, another kind of key moment of despair is actually the Corpus Christi massacre. This is the moment in which progressive Catholic leaders of the 1960s that had, a, that had taken a pacifist approach, for instance, now see no other option but to pick up arms and engage in armed struggle, right? They see it as a, as a, as a, as a world in despair that requires more radical solutions, right? So that's an example of despair. But you can also talk about despair uh, in relation to, to, to state repression, right? A state that was very authoritarian, right? Uh, that, uh, that did not welcome kind of the, the radicalism of student activists and did not welcome the radicalism that emerges from the counterculture. Another kind of example of despair might be the way in which the conservative movements made sense of the 60s. Whereas, again, in very general terms, leftist movements initially saw the 60s as this moment ripe for radical change, oftentimes framed in, utopian, in a utopian language of love. The, the, those on the far right, if you will, and again, these this categories are, uh, could be confusing and problematic, but I'm using them for the sake of argument here, um, you know, those on the right would see the 60s not as, a, as this, this utopian moment of, of change, but rather as a moment of uh, chaos, anarchy, moral disarray, as a, as a moment of despair. But it is one that nonetheless emboldens those on the right. So whereas the bulk of the book tends to pay attention to the progressive movements that emerge from the Catholic world, I also allude to and reference some of these more reactionary movements 
uh, 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 and place them in this context of despair as they understood it. So uh, whereas both love has multiple meanings as a catalyst of change in this context of the 1960s, so does despair is what I'm saying. And again, uh, 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 the tension of this polarization of ideas, if you will, is this concept of liberation, as I, as I, as I talked about earlier. So in terms of like the legacy and what changes, what doesn't change, I mean, this is a, it's a, it's a loaded question, right? But I think uh, what I argue in the book ultimately is um, if, you know, if Mexico does not become, for instance, more democratic per se, it doesn't mean that the political efforts are to be diminished, right? There was an effort to create a better world. And I talk about that effort, the obstacles that these movements faced. But the reality is that Mexico does not become a more democratic. It does, it does not end uh, uh, exploitation, poverty, all these big concerns of these movements. What does change, however, and this is kind of the argument that I make in the book, is, a, is kind of the cultural, the cultural aspects of the 60s. There is a big revolution that redefines the body, questions related to sexuality, uh, uh, questions related to the family. And this is why the films that I analyze in the book allowed me to some extent to make these arguments. You know, whereas you see, for instance, the films of the 1950s, you see a very specific traditional Mexico, right? But if you look at the films, for instance, of the mid-1970s, you know, towards the end of the global 60s, it's a different Mexico. It's a secular, modern Mexico that, uh, that is no longer censoring uh, questions related to sexuality. It is no longer a taboo as it was to talk about uh, homosexuality, for instance. So, 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 so things change. But where you see most of the change or the legacy of the 60s, if you want to frame it in those terms, is in the cultural realm of things. Well, Jaime Pensado, tell us, if you would, quickly, uh, what's next on the horizon for you in terms of research and, well, ultimately, for our listeners and readers, future books? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, well... I'm taking a break <laughs> uh, teaching, but I'm also just kind of thinking of ideas, right, that I want to write about. And, and, and of course, there's always so many ideas. And this is what got me into trouble with this book <laughs> to some extent. But one of the big ideas that I have emerges from this, from love and despair. And, 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 and it has to do with the fun that I had while analyzing many of the films, uh, it's something that I really, really enjoyed uh, while doing, while writing this book. And this is something that I want to continue in a future book project, uh, but not only strictly related to Mexico. I, I think I want to have a better understanding of the significance, impact, legacies of the global 60s vis-a-vis film. There's a very good scholarship on, on, on the 60s films, um, but I want to take a closer look at youth as a space, youth as an idea, as, 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 as perceived, as talked about, 
in, in some of the most iconic films of the era. So again, this is very vague, but this is something that I'm, that I'm thinking about right now as I teach, as I begin to kind of think about the next project. Jaime Pensado, we appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. The book, everyone, get your hands on it. It is Love and Despair, How Catholic Activism Shaped Politics and the Counterculture in Modern Mexico, University of California Press, just out in 2023. Thanks for joining us on this episode of New Books in Latin American Studies. <laughs>